Born in a world before smartphones and tablets, the Books and Browsers Conference was once aptly named as it concentrated on reading online. In 2016, of course, digital reading is about much more than books and browsers. Welcome to Copyright Clarence and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. After a one-year hiatus that allowed organizers to rethink the focus, Books and Browsers returned last week to San Francisco. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, attended the two-day conference and came away excited about the possibilities for storytelling. Welcome back to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Well, actually, we were sort of jealous of you. You got to attend that conference uh, in San Francisco last week, the seventh Books in Browsers conference, and, and really very well known uh, among the cognoscenti of the publishing industry as a forward-looking show that really does, as I say, focus on the future of storytelling. So can you tell us more about what you found in the future? Yeah. So, well, there is going to be a future. And I know after Tuesday's surprising election results, shall we say, the future is very much up for debate. But uh, that is another subject entirely. But, you know, you're right. Last week, I was my first time as well going to Books and Browsers. Uh, and I was there with about 150 in San Francisco, beautiful San Francisco, to survey the full spectrum of storytelling that's now at play. And it really was eye-opening. First, a little bit about Books and Browsers for those listeners who may never have been or may not be familiar with it. It is a conference that is produced by my friend and PW contributor, Peter Brantley, sponsored by the University of California, Davis and the Frankfurt Book Fair, with some assistance from the Berkeley New Media Program. Now, uh, the Frankfurt Book Fair people also help produce the show, and they do a really great job uh, with what really is kind of a small but a very highly regarded tech-focused publishing event. Now, listeners, may recall that the conference took a year off to refocus in 2015, uh, and this was its first year back, uh, and it came back with something of a different look. You know, this year's conference was dubbed Telling Small Stories, and it focused very much on people telling their stories about how they're telling stories. Now, for books and browsers, I will say that this year off, this transition, you might call it, uh, was necessary because over the last decade, uh, the concept of reading books online has become quite common. Early online publishing systems are, have now morphed into this entirely new generation of internet-powered storytelling. And, you know, I, I feel like those of us who attended should have gotten diplomas after the show. I really did feel like two days of intense classroom work, and it kind of opened my eyes to this broad range of work that's being done across all media, some of it complementary, some of it competitive, but all of it really crossing paths with the book at some point. All right, then. So tell us a story. Tell us about the stories you were hearing told. Yeah, and you know, right off the bat, I should mention that all of the presentations were filmed, uh, and they're going to be available for free online at some point in the coming days. So you might want to Google Books and Browsers 7, I believe the number was, for this year, uh, and see if those presentations are up. Uh, and you can check out for yourself uh, some of the things that I'll talk about here. But you know, what did I really enjoy this year? Well, first, uh, an Irish, perhaps English, uh, Northern English filmmaker named Adam Dewar presented on how he made this thriller movie slash story on Instagram called Shield 5. Uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with that, but it used 15-second video clips and also text uh, and comments from readers who got involved, etc., to sort of tell this really good spy thriller story. And when I first saw it, when Adam first started talking about it, I thought, wow, this is really cool marketing maybe for a book. And then it sort of struck me about halfway through that actually this is really good storytelling in its own right using the Instagram.
Instagram platform. Uh, and also fascinating, there was this great clip, uh, this great presentation, excuse me, from Jane Friedhoff, who is a game designer by trade, who showed off this program that she had worked on during her time at the New York Times called Membrane. Uh, and Membrane enabled authors and readers to have this sort of really robust conversation within the stories published online, something of a souped-up comments function that functioned like a, like a skin of commentary over the text. Well, Andrew, you know, I, I agree that Jane Friedhoff's work is fascinating. And last month in a Beyond the Book interview, she explained more about what she hopes to accomplish. And the idea of permeable publishing is this idea of a reading experience where there's not just like a wall between the author and the, the reader, right? Typically, you have some sort of web page or an article. Maybe there's a comment section. That comment section is, you know, down below or off to the side. It's not necessarily really linked in a way to the source material. And it's a very particular kind of interaction. You know, it's sort of two way. Maybe the author comes into the comments, but it feels like it's happening somewhere else. So it still kind of feels walled off. And what I was interested in, and this was actually very much informed by my like, game design practice, um, was how we can create holes in that wall, how we can start to make it more of like a membrane, <laughs> so to speak, and uh, allow things to flow back and forth and kind of have uh, commenters influence writers, influence commenters and back and forth. The kicker to that is that Jane, of course, has left the Times, and the Times has not pursued the project. And I sat there thinking, boy, this would be really great if we could embed this in ebooks. Uh, it'd be great for classrooms. It'd be great as a tool for journalists to use. And yet, it now sits mothballed uh, with a whole bunch of other IP. Jane doesn't even have access to the code, and it's going nowhere. So it's really too bad because I thought that this was really cool uh, and definitely would have benefited readers and publishers and storytellers of all kind. I would say a lot. Another Another great story, another great presentation was from a comics artist named Dan Goldman. Uh, visuals and visual art was really very prominently uh, part of the Books and Browsers uh, crowd here. Visual artists were, were in a number of presentations. And he talked about his work on a graphic novel and the way he put together this graphic novel project in India that dealt with sexual violence there. And that really highlighted the power of storytelling. Uh, there were more presentations on everything from metadata to virtual reality virtual reality, both in terms of the legal implications of it, as well as, you know, sort of where it is in development. Uh, and one really fun presentation, you'll get a kick out of this, was from a theater producer uh, named Michael Rao, and also sort of a performance artist who detailed this project that he put together that was really totally singular and immersive. Uh, and by that, I mean, it served one person at a time. And that person who bought the ticket would show up to a cubicle in a basement as if they were taking a new job, and they'd be immediately thrust into doing Excel spreadsheets. And over the course of that 45 minutes that would go on, he'd get emails. The work that he would do would sort of bring the story along. And I know what you're thinking. Why would anyone want to sit in a cubicle and do Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> but it was a really interesting and eye-opening way to present sort of a new narrative. Uh, and I think probably the most fun presentation, and if this one is online, you'll definitely want to see it, was from uh, a Newsweek contributor named Joe Vikes, who gave a talk and a demo on sort of the power of satire on the web. And he punctuated this with a number of hilarious hoaxes uh, that he and his friends have created that have all gone viral. But I thought the most interesting of all those was that probably the greatest prank that he did was he set up a public Facebook 
page. That is, he created a Facebook account and then gave out the password to everybody and watched as thousands and thousands of people began posting on, having conversations with, you know, using that identity online. One person got on, I think, and friended like every pet crematorium within a hundred miles uh, of where they were. Uh, and the engineers at Facebook never figured it out uh, until they did, of course, and then it was shut down. Somebody, I think, ratted them out. But it was a really neat look at a human nature as people messed with this profile, but it was also a nod to just how fluid and unpredictable this brave new digital storytelling world is. Or, or fluid and unpredictable or crazy and madcap, <laughs> depending on your point of view. Well, as we talked about after the Frankfurt Book Fair a few weeks ago, these new forms of storytelling really are a very hot topic. They were a hot topic at Frankfurt itself. And I guess the question for you there as a senior editor at Publishers Weekly is how much of this really matters? How much of it relates to the book business and to books? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and Frankfurt, we did see a lot of cool new stuff this year. And Frankfurt really does deserve kudos because they've been really really pushing this digital future for a long, long time now, and in some cases, pushing reluctant publishers forward. Uh, and you know, their sponsorship of books and browsers is another example of that. But you're right. You know, this year, we, we saw the Arts Plus debut at Frankfurt, which brought in the fine arts and the visual arts community. Uh, there were also new ventures debuting at Frankfurt this year, like Ulipo and Cinestate, which both endeavored to broaden the storytelling options for publishers and authors who now have new tools in this digital age. But I do concede that you know, the books and browser stuff can seem a little tangential to books and to publishing. But over those two days, I have to say, it, it really was like sort of a palate cleanser in terms of understanding how humans are using new tools to, you know, express stories. Uh, you know, it's one of our most innate traits is to tell stories. And there's just so many ways we can do that now. And for nearly every presenter, books and reading clearly remained at the core of what they're doing. So the message I take away from my experience of books and browsers is that, you know, reading is always going to exist because, frankly, uh, it's fun to have a book in your hands. It's, you know, also the easiest way to communicate outside of maybe having a conversation, right, is, you know, putting text on words. It's the least technical and perhaps the easiest way we can pass our stories on. But as more and more powerful tools and platforms become available, how people choose to tell their stories is going to change. It's changing now. And whether that's... Uh, with books or other media, it's all connected. So I think better understanding the impulse behind creation and storytelling uh, is a necessary and positive thing. It's it's not always about the business models. Well, well, indeed, this is this is really fascinating stuff, Andrew, and very much more than only about business models, as you say. And and so you've been a reporter there at PW for some time now. But prior to that, you had a pretty dis, uh, distinguished career and a reasonably long one in publishing. And and so how do you relate? Uh, this experience of books and browsers to those years uh, so long ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I had a 10-year career in publishing at a few different houses. And and in all that time, I never had a chance to go to a single publishing conference. Now, when I was at Oxford University Press, I went to a lot of history conferences because that was my area of work as an editor. And those were all terrific. Don't get me wrong. But for my own professional development, nothing. Uh, not a Frankfurt, not a London, not a BEA, nothing. Uh, and over the last decade as a reporter, 
I haven't missed a publishing conference. Uh, and my, my point is this, you know, it's really fun to talk to you guys and to write and to do all this stuff about the industry and to go to these shows and experience it, whether it's a London or a Frankfurt or a BEA. Uh, but I think there's great value in the industry from having people go sit together in a room to meet their peers, to meet people that are doing cool things in other media and to talk and to learn. There's great value there, especially now as digital is offering so many diverse paths for creators. And if there's one really solid realization I had when I left San Francisco, it's that publishers would really benefit by sending more of their people to events like books and browsers. Um, I think there were 150 people there. I just, you know, with 500 people in that room, I think it really could have been magic. A conference like this, I think, plants the seeds of creativity and can spark new ideas. And even if they don't pay off in the quarters immediately following uh, when somebody goes to one of these shows, they certainly are going to help in the future. So my hope is that more publishers are going to get a chance to see what I'm seeing, whether it's at Frankfurt or London or books and browsers, uh, that they'll get a chance to go talk to other people and see how digital is changing the game in new and unexpected ways. And I think it's a worthy investment for publishers uh, to send their people there, to sit in a room, to talk about their craft. Uh, and I think books and browsers was a great example of why. Well, you know, it's not just the professionals that can gain from attending conferences. The public certainly can, too, where they have the opportunity and in about 10 days' time, we're going to be uh, getting back together again at the Miami Book Fair and a chance to, to have a fascinating discussion about this very topic. Uh, uh, we will be there on Saturday, November 19th at 12 noon, taking a look at the rise of smartphones and tablets and the, the fascinating, perplexing challenge they present for reading and for books. And as you have mentioned so many times on this program, um, as the book moves from the printed page to a screen, it's now suddenly beside every other media and how well the book gets along with its new neighbors is going to be a question that publishers and readers are both looking for answers for. We're going to get some answers from our panel. You'll be there, Andrew. Uh, but along with Rafael Lima, who is a novelist, playwright, journalist, and lecturer at the University of Miami School of Communication, as well as uh, Kristen McLean, Director of New Business Development at Nielsen Book. And so I hope anyone in the Miami area will join us for that program, The Future of Reading, part of the free public fair of the Miami Book Fair International. And it's an important session that will have a lot to say about uh, publishing media and society. And, and finally, as our last note on today's program, Andrew, um, there's a controversial report. We, we learned this week that IDPF and the W3C, one of uh, Books in Browser's early sponsors, have approved a plan to merge their organizations. And this is something that I think we've known all along not everyone is happy about. Tell me about the potential wrinkle in the future of digital books. Yeah, that's right. And you can read all this. We've got a report on this in the Publishers Weekly website. But, you know, this week, the members of the IDPF, the International Digital Publishing Forum, uh, voted to approve a proposed plan to combine the IDPF, which is a standards organization for electronic publishing, with the World Wide Web Consortium. Uh, and really, it wasn't even a close vote. The vote was 72 in favor and 10 opposed, with about two-thirds of the IDPF's 130 active members weighing in. And as I said, you can read uh, the full story on the PW website. But, you know, basically proponents of the move say that the merger is going to promote common ebook standards. 
but there are critics and like the most vocal of which has been Overdrive CEO Stephen Potash, uh, who suggested that the move could weaken the publishing industry's influence over the continued development of the EPUB ebook format. That, of course, was developed by Potash when he started the Open eBook Foundation, which later became the IDPF. So what happens now? Well, we're still a ways from home. And I should caution people that the vote that IDPF took empowers merger negotiations to really get going. So the groups may sit down at the table and hash out the nuts and bolts, and they may find that a merger doesn't make sense. So it's not a done deal that there's going to be a merger here, uh, and it's going to take a little bit of time. Meanwhile, Podash has said that he's going to continue to reach out to other stakeholders and is going to continue to evaluate other options. And I don't know what that means. Other options, I don't expect to protest down Broadway, for example, but I think it's fair to say that in the ebook standards world, this is another election that has uh, some people who aren't too happy about the results. Well, what a great picture you're leaving us with. A book publisher's protest, people with signs that say, not my EPUB 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly, we always enjoy speaking with you every Friday here and Beyond the Book. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, as always. When it comes to human activities, algorithms are expected to be models of objectivity. But in her new book, Kathy O'Neill makes the case that real-world mathematical models are anything but objective. Weapons of Math Destruction was long listed for a National Book Award in nonfiction, and despite the menacing M word in the title, O'Neill insists that readers aren't required to know any formulae. It's really not a book about math. I know a lot of people worry about that, but the way I describe it is it's a book about power. And it's a book about, in particular, the way that people with power are building tools of social control and shielding those tools from scrutiny by saying, this is mathematics, you're not an expert in mathematics, so you wouldn't understand it. Um, so in other words, they're kind of like flashing the math, you know, the math ID, like you might, you might see a policeman flash their, their badge and saying like, this is something that you can't ask questions about. And my book is about sort of looking past that, that shield and, and saying, yeah, we actually have every right as human beings to ask questions about things that affect us very deeply, um, that are secret and are possibly quite unfair and destructive. Kathy O'Neill and Weapons of Math Destruction, up next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, with its subsidiaries Rights Direct in the Netherlands and Ixis in the United Kingdom. CCC is a global leader in content workflow, document delivery, text and data mining, and rights licensing technology. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.